can go from there. All right. The doctrine of God, part two. We want to look tonight at his attributes. We want to look tonight at the Trinity especially. And we just kind of want to get into it. So what are the attributes of God? The incredible thing is when we think about this, and, and we've already talked about this a little bit, to talk about the attributes of an infinite God is difficult. How many understand that? I mean, you're, you're talking about an, uh, an infinite creature, an infinite being, an infinite person. From the standpoint of our finite minds, it, it can be quite perplexing. Uh, it can be quite difficult to understand some of the concepts, but it's interesting that we've talked about it already. In the knowability of God, God has made himself knowable, and in that he's given things or given ideas or given perspectives in Scripture that allow us to gain some understanding of him and just gain a better appreciate, appreciation of him. So Isaiah chapter 40, this is our opening verse tonight. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 25 to 28, just kind of speaks about this. It says there, To whom then will you liken me, that I should be equal to him? We know that there is no one equal to God. Amen? Nobody is equal to God. Says the Holy One, Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Verse 27 says this, Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my justice escapes the notice of my God? Verse 28, Have you not known and have you not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not faint, nor is he weary, his understanding is unscrutable. And so what we just get in, in this opening passage of Scripture is understanding that God is our creator. He's our provider. He is unlimited in power, unlimited in wisdom. He does not change. And, you know, we can just see the immeasurable splendor of who God is. Now, I want to talk. I want to get into looking into the attributes of God and putting his attributes in categories can be difficult. So I just want to really just outline absolute attributes of who God is. And just kind of look at that. Some of them, I'm sure for us, will be review in a sense that we know them. But I think that it's good for us just to kind of get into it. And just to review all of these different attributes, I think I, I think if it's a, it's like eleven attributes that we're going to look at, and then and then go into the Trinity. First of all, God is self-existence or self-existent. John chapter five verse twenty-six says this: For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has given to the Son to have life in Himself. Colossians one verse seventeen says, He is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And so what we see in these passages of Scripture is that God is the absolute and complete source of life and all existence. And that we understand that God is not dependent upon anyone or anything for existence 
outside of himself. He is self-existence. There is nothing that is there to sustain God. Not unlike us. If you take away oxygen, we will quickly no longer exist. You take away food, we won't exist. You take away water, we don't exist. After a while, we our existence, our existence is dependent upon these things. But God is self-existent, and God does not depend on anything to have life or to function or to exist. And I think that that's a, just a good thing to understand. I mean, if he if he wasn't God, or if he was had to. If he had to rely upon something, that would mean that there would be somebody above him, right? If he had to rely upon something or somebody to exist, or he had to look to somebody or for something to exist, that would mean that that, uh, that person or that thing that God is relying upon would be above him and greater than him. So there has to be a ceiling, and God is that ceiling. Number two, we've talked about this in one of his names, is that he is immutable. Malachi 3.6, it says there, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. James chapter 1 and verse 17 says this, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom no is no change or shadow of turning. We talked about uh, regarding one of God's names, that he is the rock. And that rock means that he is unchanging. How many are thankful that God is unchanging? Yeah. You know, it's, a, it's very comforting to know as a believer to understand that the covenants and promises of God are as reliable as the very foundations of heaven. That God doesn't just one day wake up and decide, oh, I'm going to change my mind today. I don't like what's going on. I'm just going to change it all right here, right now. No, God God is immutable. He, everything is held to him or held together by him. Every, everything, every good gift, every perfect gift comes from him. And there is no change or shadow of turning in him. And we'll get into this in a little bit. But that, that should also... We forget that sometimes when we talk about the sovereignty of God. Because the sovereignty of God makes it sound like God can just change his mind, and he can't. That's not who he is. He's immutable. Jesus, you know, the word says that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he does not change. And that is, that is wonderful. Number three, he is eternal. He is an eternal God. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 17 says, Now to the eternal, immortal, invisible King, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever. Amen. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. We have ideas of what eternal is we have ideas of what everlasting to everlasting could mean um, but how many know that really on this side of eternity we don't really have a grasp of the eternal timetable or the eternal 
or, or what it is like to sit in eternity, right? We we just don't have we just don't have that concept. We know that we have a certain time the day starts, certain time the day ends. We know, as we've been talked a little bit before, you know, we have a time when our life begins here on earth, a time when our life ends up on the earth, and, and so we have we don't really have a a, a real grasp or perspective um, about eternity. But in God's existence, if we want to look at it in our human perspective, is from everlasting past, there is no beginning to everlasting future. There is no end. It is eternal without beginning or end. And that is something to, to grasp hold of or to, or to think about as we think about who God is the eternal uh, aspect, the immortal aspect of who he is. Any thoughts tonight? Any thoughts that you guys have on, on you know, these first three, that God is self-existent, that he's unchangeable, that he's eternal? All right, let's go on to, to the next one. His omnipresence, that he's omnipresent. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 20, or yeah, chapter 23, verses 23 to 24 says this. Am I a God who is near, says the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a, my, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I do not see him, says the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? First Kings chapter 8, verse 27 says this. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? See heaven, and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less can this house that I have built? There's two aspects of this I want to kind of talk about a little bit. We know that God is everywhere present, right? And we understand that. But how many also understand that he manifests or reveals himself seemingly in specific places? Okay? So it's it's kind of neat. You can be out you can be somewhere. God is there. You can't hide from him. You can't go anywhere and hide from God. He is present at that moment in that place at that time. But it's also interesting that it's we see it in scripture and we've even experienced it probably in our own lives where God manifests or reveals himself in specific places and makes his presence known. Some ideas or thoughts or examples of that. He met Moses at the burning bush on the mount, right? Um, you know, another one in Scripture, you remember in, when the priests ministered unto the Lord and suddenly the presence of the Lord was so powerful and strong that uh, they could not stand in his presence, right? In the Old Testament especially, you see it in the, in the, in the tabernacle when the priest even went into the, the holy of holies, you know, the most holy place, and, and it would seem like it was like God's very presence was there, or even, I mentioned it with Moses, but when Moses was hidden in the cleft of the rock, and God... God made himself known or manifest in that time. He was everywhere, but in that specific instance, he seemed to reveal or manifest himself in that one moment, in that one place. Even today, 
We say that he is everywhere, yet we, we, we often talk or will say when we're talking or praying together that where two or three are gathered, he is there, right? Um, you know, we also know that the presence of God is in his church in a special way through the working of the Holy Spirit, you know? There's an aspect of God's presence in that. And we also know that there's been, you know, probably moments in our own lives individually or even in times when we're in church sometimes. How many know it seems like, I'll put it this way because it explains it, it seems like God walks through the door. You know what I mean? You know, we say God is here, but it's like all of a sudden it's like, okay, now he is here. And, and it's like he's manifested himself in, in, a, in, a, in a way. And it's a wonderful blessing to realize the omnipresence of God and that everywhere that we are, that we can pray, that we can worship, that we can serve, he is there. And that he never, he never leaves us nor forsakes us in the sense that he's always in us as well, uh, but he is omnipresent. He's also omniscient, or om, omniscient in that he knows everything. Psalm chapter 139, verses 1 to 4 says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I get up. You understand my thought from afar. Uh, you search my path and my lying down and are aware of all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it fully. It's a, it, the, Again, two aspects. I just want to look at this. Nothing happens anywhere of which God is ignorant. He knows everything. Okay, We can't hide our actions, and we can't hide our thoughts from God. That is on one hand a comforting thing. On the other hand, that can sometimes be a frightening thing. That there's not a thought or there's not an action, there's not a, there's not a thing in my heart that I can hide from God. I can't hide my purposes. I can't hide my plans. I can't hide my intentions. Everything God knows. But there's also this side of it too where God is also all wise in his plans and purposes. He knows all things from the beginning. And he has in his wisdom made plans for the future. And, and carries out those plans in perfect order. You know, even thinking about the plan of redemption of his people. God said that, as we've talked about on Sunday, before the foundations of the world, he put it in order. In his wisdom, you know, in his understanding, uh, in his understanding that nothing takes him by surprise, he planned the redemption of his, of, uh, the redemption plan. He planned the building of his church. And we also know that he's planned that he's coming back again. And there is an eternal side of that plan that we see in Scripture that is still to be lived out and fulfilled, but we know that it will take place and that God has set all of this in order through his omniscience. That's, a, that's an incredible, incredible thing. Another one, and then we'll, we'll open up for a little discussion or comments or thoughts, is omnipotent. Oh, Omnipotence, all these omni words are giving me a tying up my tongue. All powerful, let's put it that way. All powerful. Um, 
Jeremiah 32, verse 17 says this, Ah, Lord God, truly you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm, and there is nothing too hard for you. What's too hard for God? Nothing, right? And we see this even in the examples of Scripture. We see it in we see it in the creation. When you look out into the stars and you look out especially into the universe and you see that that vast universe is in a sense from everlasting to everlasting, the, that the universe has no real end, no real beginning, and that God created it. I mean, that's just incredible. You, you, if you look at how fearfully and wonderfully made our bodies are, that's incredible. Uh, if you look at um, how Bible prophecy, even concerning the destinies and the plans of nations and how God rules the affairs of kings and, and people and, and nations and how God works it out and how God can just interject and do the things that he does, it's incredible. If you look even into the life of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead shows the power of God over death in the grave. You know, so you have all these examples. There is nothing too hard for the Lord. There's nothing that he cannot do. There's nothing that he can that can stop him. There's nothing that can stand in his way. He truly is all powerful. Any any thoughts or questions or comments on this on these three? Number seven of, of the attributes of God, his sovereignty. Reading a verse that we looked at over the past couple of Sundays, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us to the adoption as sons to himself through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will. There's a... You know, and we talk about this in Scripture through all the different things or through the different uh, revelations of this, that God is sovereign. But that does not mean he's arbitrary. Right? God is sovereign, but that does not mean he's arbitrary. He does not change. God can be sovereign, but he also does not violate man's freedom of will. Uh, and, and so forth. And so I look at God's sovereignty. Some people look at it maybe a little bit differently. There are Christians who believe that God's sovereignty means that God can do whatever he wants, that he can simply just change his mind whenever he wants, that today he can decide to do one thing for someone, and tomorrow he can decide to do something else for somebody else, and that God can and this is just part of who he is. It's part of his, him being the, in his kingdom, that he can just kind of rule the way he rules. I kind of look at that as a earthly, or if you want to say carnal view of sovereignty, because that's how we have probably seen earthly kings and rulers rule, you know, that the king can, especially in the old days when there were kings who ruled, they just kind of did it by the whim of their whatever they're feeling that way. I look at it this way. God is sovereign 
And in his sovereignty, he sets up plans and he sets up purposes and he sets his will in place. And once that is set in place, he will not change from it. Such as the plan of redemption or the plan of salvation. Such as, uh, you know, when he says, I'm going to give mankind dominion over the earth. There's an aspect of he gave us some degree of authority and dominion on the earth. And I don't think that God overrides that. Um, yeah. No. No. And so I look at God being sovereign, yes. But I look at God in his sovereignty, put things in place that now are, as you could say, eternal laws in him how he's established it, and those things are set in order and will not change. And so that's the way I look at, at the sovereignty of God um, and, and so forth. This is, the sovereignty of God is kind of where you get the, 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 the arguments or the, the difference of views between like Calvinists or the Reformed and, and say us uh, who, who believe more on the free will side and understand that we have, uh, we have the ability to choose. In some sense, you know, we are sovereign. In a certain sense, as human beings, individuals, we are sovereign in that we can make choice, right? Uh, and, and I mean, we have to live by those choices. Okay, there's consequences to those choices, but we have that ability to walk in making choices. So God is righteous and he's just. He's righteous and he's just. Genesis chapter 18 verse 25 says, Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be treated like the wicked. Far be it from you, should not the judge of all the earth do right? We get there that God is a righteous judge or righteous God because he acts in all times in complete conformity, which we've actually already talked about tonight. He acts in complete conformity with his nature and his will. God does not operate outside of that. A verse which I actually mentioned, Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 4 says, He is the rock. Or he's unchangeable, he's immutable. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just. He is a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. There's another way of putting it, and that's by putting in even some of the words that are behind the Jewish words that are there. Uh, he is the rock, or he is unchangeable. His work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment, or all of his ways are just judgment. A God of truth or a God of faithfulness in fulfilling his promises. He's a God without iniquity. In other words, he's a God who in justice deals with mankind. He is just, he is righteous, and he is right, or upright is he. So God deals with us. God operates and operates and functions in a place of righteousness, which means that he also operates and functions in a place of being a just God. And that is, that is a, 
good thing to know. That's a good thing to understand and, and, and just to have within ourselves. Um, which also means that that's what he expects from how we deal with one another. God wants us to deal with one another in righteousness, in a place of justice, in a place of being just towards one another. And it, this kind of comes back to even the whole thing about the sovereignty of God and the whole thing about God does not, is not a respecter of persons. He deals with people in a righteous, just manner. And, uh, you know, we can be assured of that and, 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 and just have, a, uh, you know, that promise just built up within our hearts. I mean, how could we say that God would be a just God if he condemned? Think about it. If he pre-condemned somebody to hell on the moment that they're born, the moment that they're born, or the moment that they're conceived, that soul is born, that person is condemned to hell. How could you ever say that he's a just God? You know, and people will say, well, he's God. His ways are higher than our ways. I think about it this way. But God says in his word, even sometimes, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to you know, the Holy Spirit to those who ask, which tells me this, that God understands that even in our, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Our, our sinful, earthly, carnal logic, we understand what is good and, and what is bad in the sense that as a father, who is sinful, I know how to give good gifts to my children. I know what is just for my kids. I know what is right for my kids. And so, you know, I, I think of that, you know, we know that God would be an unjust God if he condemned people to hell right from the moment of their conception. Any thoughts? All right, two more, and then we'll jump into the Trinity a little bit. God is love. 1 John 4, 7 and 8 says there, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. That is incredible. And really, I didn't look necessarily at defining this. You could, you could go into the, the love chapter if you want to describe love. But I just thought about what are the examples or the proofs of God's love towards us. First of all, what? John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Yet through his son, he has secured our salvation and eternal life. Amen. Uh, the desiring and his providing for all of us the things that we need. How about his love in sending us the comforter, the Holy Spirit? You know, he did that out of his love. You and I do not walk each and every day by ourselves, but we have the, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, working in us, and that is because God designed it, and he designed it in his plan and purpose because he loves us. How about placing us in his body? Or how about becoming a son or a child of God? He loved us so much that he decided and said, I want to make you my child. Or providing us with bodily healing. Or how about his love in his mercy? 
in his long-suffering, in his goodness, in his forgiveness, in his compassion, right, towards us as individuals. And so we just, we see in all of these different things how much that, that God is, you know, embodies love, that, that love is God, God is love, and that true love exudes out of who God is, and we can see the proofs of Scripture there. The last one regarding these attributes, and by the way, this is not a finished list of attributes. You could continue for a long time, but we've got to move on, is truth. God is a God of truth. He is truth. Titus 1 verse 2 says, In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. John chapter 1 verses 14 says this, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, the glory as the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Just kind of three thoughts about this tonight. Because God is truth, his word is true. Right? Because he is truth, his word is truth. What he says is true. We even read it. He cannot lie. So his word that he gives to us is true. Okay, because God is truth, because he's the only true God, because he's the creator of all things, he can the, then therefore be the only true object of our worship. Okay, if, he's, if he is the exalted one, if he is the holy one, if he is the you know, self-existent one, if he is the omniscient one and all these different things, he can be the only true object of our worship. But another one is this. Because God is truth, he is faithful to keep all his promises and covenants. God cannot and God will not lie. Isn't that good to know? You know, that, that in this he is truth. And because he's truth, he's faithful in everything. And he cannot and will not lie. Any thoughts? Comments, questions. Well, let's go on to the Trinity. The Trinity, the triunity or the Trinity of God. When we were when we were talking about the attributes or the nature of God, I I mean that's that's full of, like you say, you could go on for a long time on dif different things, but but in some sense the the Trinity of God is probably one of those you know, top three, if you want to say, divine mysteries that Scripture talks about. Um, you know, we have an understanding of three in one, but yet I don't think that we really understand three in one in the way that Scripture, in the way that it is in Scripture. Now, I will say this. Let's start out right from the start. There are there are churches, and who you could say Christians, quote-unquote, that do not believe in the Trinity. Okay? They are, you know, like for example, the Oneness Pentecostals. Okay? They don't believe in the Trinity. They believe in Jesus only. Okay? And that there is no Father, there is no Son, uh, there is no Holy Spirit, that it's all encompassed in Christ, if you want to say. Um, those are kind of on the fringe sides of Christianity and somebody asked one time are they saved I'll leave that one up to God alright God will convict and God will deal with their hearts I think that sometimes they are walking on 
dangerous ground, certain thin ice. That's a better way. It's a thin ice, so to speak. Um, but, uh, you know, I'll let God worry about it. Uh, really, the, 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 the Trinity is something that has been part of the church history for a long time. Okay, right from the beginning. And in fact, they had this debate even several hundred years after the church started. And we know out of uh, the Constantinople uh, meetings in 381 AD that the Nicene Creed came out. And that was to unite the church in what we believed. And you've probably heard of this. We believe in one God. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And we believe in the Holy Ghost, who is the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father, who, the, who with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets." And so they made this statement that all the churches needed to come under as far as the aspect of there is the Father, there is the Son, there is the Holy Spirit, and we adopt or we believe in the Trinity. But what does the Scriptures have to say? What is our scriptural foundation for this? Let's look at it a little bit. In the Old Testament, we, see, we do see in the Old Testament compared to New Testament, we see a different emphasis. In the Old Testament, it would seem to emphasize the unity of God, the oneness of God, if you want to say. In the New Testament, we see much more the activity of the Trinity in place, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there's probably a reason for this. Remember in the Old Testament, God revealed himself to Abraham as God Almighty, the El Shaddai. He revealed himself to Moses through the redemptive name of God being Jehovah. And, you know, he made the statement, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, right? Or you have the Ten Commandments in which it says there in Exodus 20, verse 3, Thou shalt not have no other gods before me. And we kind of wonder why. Well, why did God say this to Israel? And why was maybe this emphasis? And this is just kind of maybe my theory. But I look at it. We know that Scripture is an ongoing revelation of God, his plan, his purpose, and what he's going to do. Well, Israel at the time was surrounded by tribes and nations that had departed from who God was, had departed from the Creator who embraced a variety of other gods or goddesses or other deities. And so it's very possible that in God trying to reveal himself, he was just trying to reveal himself to Israel and let them know that he was there and not try to, con if you want to say, confuse the situation by trying to reveal to Israel his triunity of who he is as being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. My thought Maybe I'm wrong or whatever, but it just seems that through the life of Israel, God really revealed himself as one. It would be emphasized, it emphasized him, God, Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord, more than it emphasized, you know, 
the working of the Holy Spirit. Now, we did see the work of the Holy Spirit. You saw him. Okay? You even saw aspects of Jesus being related in the different things. But it was always more of just the emphasis of God uh, being one. It is interesting. There are verses that hint to it. For example, Genesis 1.26, Let us make man in our image. Okay? Also, Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 8, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. So there seems to be hints. There's hints in the Old Testament of it, but there's not necessarily clear declarations or pictures of it as much as there are in the New Testament. When we get to the New Testament, it becomes very clear. And probably one of the clearest pictures is at the baptism of Jesus. And this is where I do not know how a oneness person can look and say, how can there not be three? Because in the baptism, let me just read it. Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And when Jesus was baptized, he came immediately out of the water. And suddenly the heavens were opened and he saw what? The Spirit of God descending on him, descending on Jesus like a dove, and a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So how you have right there, active all at the same time, the Holy Spirit, the Father, and Jesus. Okay, I don't, I don't know how you can look at that and say, there's not three. Okay, just doesn't make sense to my mind. Unless there's a new math out there that I don't know about. There probably is, right, brother? No? Okay. <laughs> oh, we also have the words of Jesus. John 14, 26. But the counselor, think about this. Jesus is saying, but the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have told you. Jesus said even about himself, when I go, the Father will send another, meaning like me, you know. So again, you have Jesus saying, there's the Holy Spirit, there's the Father, and he, he's going to be sending it in my, he's going to send it in my name. Or what about water baptism? Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, what? Baptizing them in what? The name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, so you have these things. Or the apostolic benediction out of 2 Corinthians chapter 13. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the communion and fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 